Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, kitties. Can I do it one more time, Uncle? Oh, please. Oh, all right. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello, my favorite little hobgoblins. It's your old pal, the librarian. Some would say I'm downright Victorian. You're getting quite an act for this, dear girl. Do you really think so? Well, of course. I mean, who else would run the library when I've passed on? Uncle, um, you've already passed on. Oh, that's right. Faux pas. (laughs) Oh, well, why not tell the boils and ghouls who's up for our last Women in Horror episode? Well, Uncle, it's not our last. Every month is Women in Horror, especially in your library. But this round, we have our good friend, Miss Aaron Bleck, the author of a certain show called The Private Collector, in a sinister tale she calls The Baron of Bourbon Street, featuring our friend, the Baron Samdi. Told by Denise Michelle Johnson, Guy Ford. Nelson W. Piles and Daniel Wojtek, and featuring the custom score by Nico Vatiz. Ooh, that's a good one. Well done, Victoria. You've done an excellent job. Thanks, Uncle. It was so much fun. Well, all right then. Let's hear your laugh on the count of three. One, two... <laughs> Did you like it? Oh, my dear. (laughs) If I weren't dead, that would have killed me. (laughs) (laughs) The Baron of Bourbon Street by Aaron Vleck The Baron strode through the river of humanity as it pulsed along Bourbon Street. Men and women lost in nature's most primal cadence. The Baron Samadhi. Tall, magnificent, the color of a starless midnight, with top hat and cane and a necklace of bones, white grease paint, and the lines of a skeleton on his lean, muscular body beneath the raven tails of a frock coat from a distant age. He opened himself to all who hungrily sought his gaze, But at the touch of his soul upon their own, they quickly fled back into the crowd. He reveled in this nightly stroll and took pleasure in seeing his future children parading their finery and their flesh for his inspection. The scent of sweaty bodies caressing the darkest places of his being felt like the cold fingers of the beautiful dead. The Baron sighed, interrupted by the touch like a child's hand knocking clumsily on the wall of his mind. Cartier, 
freeing himself from the sea of arms and hands that brushed against his body. He zigzagged through the twilight and sought the shadows of Orland Street. Somewhere nearby, among the quiet places of New Orleans, Alphonse de Cartier was calling him. Alphonse de Cartier's ancestress had been a matriarch of profound acumen and influence in New Orleans society. Residents of color proudly crossed Marjoline Elise de Cartier's threshold into her elegant parlor for coffee and small French cakes, while pasty-faced whites slipped around to the back door under pretense, concealed by wide-brimmed hats, turned-up collars, and veils. All Mimi's visitors left with what they had come for, roots and powders, to fix anything from the pox to bothersome lovers, and sometimes instructions in matters both curious and arcane. Some who visited Mimi were never seen or heard from again, occasionally of their own volition. Madame de Cartier had been a poetess and a painter, and the legendary beauty of her day, a mambo, a voodoo priestess of extraordinary power. The one notable legacy that Madame was able to bestow upon her descendant emanated from her patron, the Baron Samedi himself. Master of crossroads, the consumer of fine rums, expensive cigars, and the tender souls of the dead. In an act of uncharacteristic pity, or boredom, the Baron Samedi took Alphonse into his dark tutelage, and thus, on that night of August 21st in the year 2016, when the Baron felt the call of de Cartier groping through his mind like a talentless thief picking his pockets, he turned quickly and went in search of his protege. Alphonse stood at the edge of a pool of blood. The woman was beautiful, or had been, before her throat was slit from ear to ear. Her white dress was soaked red and she was cold to the touch. Soon, he'd be calling it in. Then he'd watch as Fromier and the rest swarmed over the scene like ants. But before calling it in, the Baron would come. There was the corpse, the bloody straight razor gripped in her right hand, and a note neatly written in a delicate hand with the single message, tonight is a most auspicious night, ma chérie, and signed by a Veronique. No sign of a struggle, no defensive wounds or bruises, and not a soul in sight. Sitting next to the corpse, upstream from the pooling blood, de Cartier threw his arms wide to the sky. Then he opened his mind and silently called out to his patron. The Baron's fingers were red with blood as he knelt beside the body. He brought his fingers to his lips and tasted. Yes. Another suicide. Are you sure? I thought this one looked more like a homicide. This is the third time this month you have called me, and your corpse has been no murder! <laughs> murder is so common in this age of bad manners and childish tempers, perhaps, but not this time. Something is happening in my territory, Alphonse. Discover what, and do not delay. You of all people know how I get when I become restive. 
Yes. The Cartier winced at the implications. As he did so, sirens shattered the silence of the darkened street. The Baron stood and turned. Alphonse, one more thing. He tapped a Cartier's chest with a long, slender finger, tipped menacingly by a sharpened fingernail. There is a wrongness, an emptiness to this body, as with the first two you found. Remember that, and be wary. Then, he was gone. Fromier was climbing out of his own vehicle as Tillman and Franklin's squad car skidded to a halt, and a tall, black cop jumped out, his partner, Tim Badawin. Hey, Fromier, I want a copy as soon as you can manage it. Descartier handed Fromier the bad note. Yeah, sure, Al. What's this, the third time this month? Fromier scowled and took the bag back to his car. Descartier saw his partner hunched over, his coat gripped around his midsection. Baldwin, you okay, man? Just got a chills off. Baldwin looked around the empty street. It's got to be down near 80. I know, but something's off. I mean, can't you feel it? Oh, never mind. You just think I'm crazy. Try me. Well, I got a case of the whimwams. Descartier considered. Perhaps Tim was feeling the Baron, his echo. He glanced at the squad car. The rest of the crew was ready to pull out. Tillman laid on the horn. Badawin, come on. We're getting out of here. Go on, I got him. You sure, man? Hell yeah, I want to hear about these whimwams. In the root place, the dark cellar of the world, the Lord of the Crossroads and Master of the Dead drew the sweet, sugary smoke into the lungs of the body he wore to walk among the living. All around him swarmed the dead, floating in the air before him, wide-eyed and unbelieving, praying they only dreamed and would soon wake up, safe in their beds. Some were intensely beautiful, drifting like wisps of cloud, delighting in freedom from the flesh and its many horrors. Others screamed for mercy, where there was no mercy to be had. Some glistened uncleanly in the firelight, clinging to the Baron's body like slugs and leeches before he pulled them off and tossed them into the fire that burned forever in this place. Here were those who had crossed the threshold, that separates the living from the dead, and all who patrol the crossroads between the two. The Baron lounged on his throne of skulls, contemplating a particularly fine bottle of rum and the three deaths that troubled de Cartier. The Baron was not perplexed. He was amused. These three had not come running to his call when their time upon Earth was up, and he was sure there were more. It could only mean one thing. Another had interfered. He drank deeply from the bottle of rum and sat back on his throne, pondering what to do about these ten wayward souls and how best to convey his displeasure to the one who had crossed him. Ah, uh, whoever you are in the shadows, you try my patience. You think I would not see your handiwork? That I would not smell the suicides that are your calling card on the night breeze in this? My time? The Baron's smile betrayed the true nature of his thoughts. I will have my sport, as I always do. The Baron's deep, melodious voice echoed through his subterranean chamber, 
as the fluttering white things thickened the air around him. The barren Samadhi was just a shadow when he entered the dark places that hold the world together. A single light bulb at the end of a closed alley showed the private club, La Jouette La Marie. The Baron entered the shabby club and gazed over the crowded dance floor as red spotlights pummeled sweating bodies to a cacophony of canned sound. La Jouette La Marie, the place for dark sport and blood games. The place where no rules constrain the desires of those with nothing to lose in this world. A warren of back rooms in La Jouette were private and discreet, and they were always occupied. Everyone in this place danced with the Baron that night, longing to be the one he took home to his bed, the one he set free with his cold hand upon their heart. But tonight was not like other nights. The Baron Samadhi was distracted, bemused and pondering dark thoughts of another, a shrouded antagonist. But they were not here on the dance floor of La Jouette La Marie. Of that, he was sure. That night, La Jouette La Marie burned to the ground. The Baron Samadhi took everyone inside to his bed where he bestowed upon each their greatest desire. At Badawin's place, the two men stared into their coffee cups like they were reading the grounds and looking for signs. So what was going on back there? Tim Badawin sighed and tossed back his coffee like it was a shot of bourbon. <sighs> Baldwin looked Alphonse square in the eyes. You know, I don't see much of my family, right? Yeah, I figured, since you never talk about them. Strange for a Louisiana man born and bred. Yeah, well, most of my family, they're church people. Good folks. I'd help them any way I could. But you just don't place much stock in the kind of thing. Yeah, I guess... That's about the size of it. Anyway, my granny's side of the family, woo, son, this is a whole nother story. I'm telling you. <laughs> right from the get-go, she, a bunch of cousins, other kin that they got out there, I don't know about, they're all into that weird shit, you know, spells and stuff, dancing around, singing all the hours of the night, creepy drawings. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I know you do. Baldwin flashed to Cartier a glance that said they were finally getting down to business. Yeah, I do. Descartier knew it, firsthand, and wired in the bone, as the Baron always said. Okay, so we've established all of that. What spooked you back there? Made you bring all this stuff up now? Just a feeling in my gut, like worms crawling around in there trying to get out. There was something wrong about that dead girl, I tell you. Reminded me of my granny's folks somehow. Descartier nodded. So maybe it wasn't only the Baron that had spooked Tim. Well then, let me ask you this. Your granny's folks, they're good people. Why are you thinking they might be mixed up in this? I can't rightly say exactly. When I was a kid, I used to ride my bike out there bringing pies such to them and letters from Mama begging them to come to church. Whenever I did, they just laughed and I didn't like that laughter. Baldwin took a long slug of his coffee. 
You sensitive on that stuff, Nin? Even as a kid? Far back as I can remember. Okay. Anything else you can tell me? Well, it sure as shit didn't feel right. If that's what you mean, I never saw them as actually doing anything bad, but they, they always be whispering around me and never look me straight in the eye, always off to the side. And they'd pester me to come back and stay tonight, but there was no damn way that was gonna happen. When I told my mama they was pestering me to stay that night, she never made me go back out there. Baduin paused to stare at his coffee cup again. But one thing I never did tell Mama about was the dreams. Dreams? Yeah, dreams. Where a woman was calling me, like, come out and play stuff. I could never make out her face, but she was calling me in a way that took all my power to resist. Pulling at me, always pulling at me. Your granny? Bowdoin shook his head. No, not her, but one of them, I'm sure. As terrified as I was of those dreams, as much as I knew I didn't want to go, I wanted to. I wanted to go real bad. And I always had the windwams when I woke up. Jeez. Sun's coming up. Damn! They both laughed as though the arrival of daylight could somehow banish the night's conversation and the windwams to the farthest corner of unreality. It was Thursday the night sacred to the Ursuli Freda, in the basement of an elegant 19th-century townhouse on Britannia Street in the Garden District. The lights burned late, as they often did, and the large, repurposed room was an impossible contrast of images. Clean and orderly, it could have been the operating room of a small hospital. Steel instruments lay in careful array along spotless countertops, while boxes, tubes, and canisters filled with dozens of medicinal solutions and topical antiseptics were stacked and ready at hand. But this is where the resemblance to the healing arts retreated and ran screaming. In the center of the room, seven corpses were laid out on surgical tables, all hooked up to hoses and dozens of IV lines that penetrated the fragile, rotting flesh. The bodies were preternaturally pale, painted in a mixture of ash and egg whites and etched with a warren of delicate traceries, familiar to practitioners of the arcane arts of the South. Traceries which betray the nature of the doctor who officiated at the macabre scene. A graduate with honors from LSU Medical School, the daughter and proud heiress of one of the most notorious mambos alive, Veronique Aliette Sabatier stood tall and beautiful, her dark skin flushed with excitement beneath her flowing lavender gowns and tall headdress, her fierce, intelligent eyes locked intently on the seven corpses. She no longer had the luxury of taking her victims one by one. Other powers were becoming aware of her, closing in. Her medical training had at least allowed her to keep these seven close to her, and now each in his or her turn had given up what she needed. Hundreds of candles lit the scene and the walls danced with spectral shapes. The air drooped with the fragrance of a thousand roses and the sweet aroma of cakes, champagne, and a dozen other beautiful offerings which adorned the altar. The gris-gris talisman of Azuli Freda 
the one who brings success and love to her daughters and sons, covered the floor. Papa Legba had given his permission to proceed. Veronique's offerings were the most sumptuous and costly, and she was the most beautiful and powerful of all who called upon Ursuli, more powerful even than her own mother and all the mothers before her, or so she believed. The priestess raised her arms and her body shook with delight as she swayed and cried out her deepest desires. Again and again, she chanted the sacred litany, her voice cresting in a hoarse, throaty cry, guttural, terrifying, but enticing to any who might have even heard its echo on the night breeze. It was no surprise when it was the breeze that answered, hot, sweet, and fragrant, caressing her body like the hands of a thousand lovers. In the center of the room, a gentle creaking as of rusted locks and splintered doors rose in a symphonic crescendo as seven corpses, white as ash, shambled up onto dead feet and stood before their priestess. Their sightless eyes gaped as cold limbs tore free of the tubes and groped instinctually towards Veronique like the babe for its mother's arms, grasping hungrily at her limbs and stroking her hair. Into each ear, she bent with a kiss and whispered a secret too horrible for any among the living to hear. Veronique, priestess of Urzuli Frida, slid into each languid embrace, dancing barefoot with them in turn, across a floor strewn with rose petals and painted with the stark white vivi of her patron, the loa of true and abiding love. What do we got? And my God, what's that fucking smell? See for yourself. What the... De Cartier bellowed as he looked over the rim of the dumpster. Yeah. Oh, boy. Where the hell's Sharky? That corner on his way already or What? Here he comes. Fromier broke into a sprint towards the coroner's van to escape the aroma wafting from the dumpster. Body, Sharky. We got lots of them, I tell you. Dr. Mark Shackleton climbed out of his van and pulled his kit from the back of the vehicle. Dumpster's full of them. Naked. Damnedest shit I've ever seen. We got a Class A freakazoid on our hands, bucko. The coroner got to work. It's uh, pretty bad. The bodies were being laid out and prepped for the trip downtown. So, what do we know at this point? Okay, so seven victims, four male, three female, ages roughly 25 to 35, but you can see that. Okay, Sharky, how about you give us something we don't see? Hey, dude, I'm just doing my job. Give me a break, huh? Yeah, yeah, he's sorry. This is going to be a clusterfuck. It's got nightmare written all over it in near lights. I know that. And then the... Yeah. What's that stuff all over their skin? Paste or something? I won't know exactly what the composition is until I run some tests. But it looks like it may be ash and something else. Some binding agent. Uh, look at these designs all over the skin. No smudging. My guess is egg whites. Egg whites? Why is that? The oldest natural binding agent there is. 
used for centuries in painting. It helps create a stable surface and seals pigment. And look at the puncture marks on the skin here, here, and here. The same on all the bodies. Looks like, you know, little IV marks. The clean, placed with precision. Sharkleton pointed to the entry wounds on each of the bodies. Whoever did this, it looks like they knew what they were doing. Is, is what you're saying? Yeah, I'd say so, but I'm done here. I'll get these back to my lab and I'll call you with whatever I have when I get it. Good deal, Sharky. Appreciate it. Alphonse, those markings, you get a good look at all that? How could I not? Damn, it's cold all of a sudden. I'm going to grab my jacket. Hmm, yeah, yeah. Baldwin broke into a sprint toward the car. He turned and looked at Sharkleton. He and his team had returned to their vehicle and were just sitting there. And they'd left the bodies on the tarmac. What the hell are they doing? Then he looked at Baldwin. He was sitting on the back seat of their vehicle just staring into space. They're just taking a little siesta. The Baron crooned in his ear from behind. Descartier turned and saw Baron Samedy bending over the bodies, shaking his head, a scowl on his face. This is not right. Alphonse, oh, oh, no, no, no. Seven corpse is never good, and we both know what this looks like. Descartier joined his patron and looked at the corpses. Oh, no, young Alphonse. Of course I know. But do tell me what you see. You tell the Baron Semedy what he sees when he says something is not right among the lovely dead. Well, it looks like they know. Look with the eyes of your inheritance. Look with the eyes that your grandma, Marjolaine Elise, gave you. See what your colleagues cannot see. And tell me what you feel. Feel them, Alphonse. Feel the dead. Descartier took a step back, filled his lungs with the putrefaction and cold emptiness that made the body shimmer with transparent nothingness. What the... Tell me. Describe it. You see what is wrong? I can smell it in your sweat. They're empty, just rotting me. Descartier's lips curled in disgust. I've never seen bodies like this before. Not true. What do you mean? I've never... Yes! The women last week, the one I thought was a homicide, and the two before that, you're saying that they were the same? What does it mean? It means, my dear Alphonse, that you are right. They are indeed empty. That is not how it's supposed to be until I come for them. It means somebody else took their souls. But how? How indeed? Only a very great Bokor could presume to trespass for even but a moment upon my sacred ground. A very great Bokar, or perhaps a Mambu, as it could be. The Baron was watching Descartier closely as the implications sunk into his bowels and took root. Descartier turned to see Baldwin moving again, coming toward him. And when he looked back, the Baron was gone. Let's get out of here. I need to get some dinner. You hungry? Yeah, always. Okay, jump in the car. We'll go grab a bite. I got the copy of the note the dead girl in the alley was holding, but what do you make of it? Descartier handed the note to his partner and started the engine. Mind you. Baldwin groaned, staring straight ahead, his lips trembling. What is it? You think the dead girl from the other day is tied up in this thing? There is a good chance. Why? Sharky said whoever did these bodies knew what they were doing. The puncture marks, I mean, like they had medical training. That's right. What are you thinking? Baldwin, what is it? This note and this? Veronique? 
My cousin's name is Veronique. So what? A lot of women around here are named Veronique. As for the note, we have no idea who wrote it at this point. Well, this cousin, she's part of the family I told you about. My cousin's out there in the woods into all that voodoo stuff. Descartier was getting a cold spot where his heart was. And? And she's a doctor. She has a practice at a house on Britannia. Descartier didn't like this sort of coincidence. Well then, maybe we need to pay her a visit. Find out if she's good for this or clear her. If she's not involved, you'll sleep better tonight. We'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, we gotta do that. Descartier and Baudouin climbed the broad marble stairs to the ornate lavender-painted front door of one of the most elegant addresses on Britannia Street. The place was almost overgrown with rose vines, and the scent that filled the summer heat was intoxicating. After several knocks, the door opened, and a beautiful, tall, black woman in scrubs, her hair twisted into a turban, greeted them with a look of astonishment. I'm Dr. Sabatier. Do you have an appointment? Descartier found her deep, heady voice, almost as captivating as the clouds of incense that wafted out of the house to compete with the roses. I'm afraid my nurse and receptionist have gone for the day. No, I'm Detective Descartier, and this is my partner. Oh, my God! Cousin Timothy? Veronique? May we come in? Of course. What's this about? But do come in and make yourselves comfortable here. She waved them into a luxuriously appointed sitting room, which opened off the large hall. I'll change into something more appropriate. I won't be but a moment. She went upstairs to return only a couple of minutes later, dressed in lavender robes and a head wrap. She walked silently on small manicured bare feet over the lush Persian carpet, like a dancer, and slid onto the sofa next to Descartier, taking his arm. She pressed her body against his and glanced briefly at Baudouin. What can I help you with, detective? <coughs> Descartier coughed, the incense thick in his throat. He was having trouble concentrating. It's, um, <coughs> it's an awkward matter, Dr. Sabatier. Maybe nothing. A boy, about 13, in formal livery, entered the room, carrying a silver tray with coffee and small cakes. Baudouin looked to Descartier, who was staring with puzzlement at their hostess. Who's there? Baudouin asked, as the boy bent to serve him. No one who matters. <laughs> Do have one of these little cakes. Despite themselves, they pushed the soft, sweet cakes into their mouths, chewing automatically. Good, good. Veronique smiled, watching as their eyes clouded, and she whispered something into Descartier's ear. Descartier and his partner stood outside a house on Britannia Street. The building was dark, the street quiet and they had no recollection of why they had come to this place or who might live inside. What? What are we doing here? 
Baudouin shook his head, as if to clear it. There was a woman. A flash of his inheritance, of Marjolaine Elise de Cartier, cut through his confusion. Veronique, your cousin? Mm, the, the face. The face from my dreams all those years ago. Jeez, Alphonse, it was her. What did she do to us? She hexed us and nearly shook us off, is what? I'd say that means she's our girl, or a big part of this mess. We need to get back inside. Baldwin's hand slid to his holster. And we need to call it in, in more ways than one. Once again, he opened his mind, calling. Veronique smiled approvingly into the mirror atop the altar in her ritual chamber. Robed and anointed, she surveyed the room that was alight with the glow of scented candles and incense. Also on the altar were the cakes and roses and champagne of her patroness, Ursula Freda, as well as the fine cigars, the costly rum, and the other implements of power favored by the one she sought to command, compel, and take into her bed. Oh, you, look upon me. See me, come and behold me, take me in your arms. Dancing before the altar with complete abandon, her passions were more inflamed as the longing for the one she sought possessed her. See me, see how beautiful I am. You cannot resist me, I am the woman, the woman who would command even the getter of the dead the master of the grave and the lord of the darkest night. O Samadhi, O baron of the graveyards of eternity, come, come unto me. How can you resist this body? Do you not long to do my bidding and so gain the rewards of these arms, these thighs, and these breasts? She wailed and tossed off her robes and stroked her oiled flesh with the ardor she sought to awaken in her desired one, the Baron Samadhi himself. The candles on the altar sputtered, then rose up like torches several feet high, while the air in the room darkened slowly as an inky presence seeped in from unknown places and swirled around her. Yeah. See what I have gathered before you, if you try to resist my charms. Perhaps this will entice you. On the top shelf of the altar sat ten clay jars, each glowing from within and sealed with the wax crest of her name of secret power. The jars contained the souls of four men and six women. The inky darkness swarmed and thickened around Veronique's body, teasing her, enrapturing her, inflaming her pride with the ease of such a mighty conquest. The presence swelled within her and filled her being with its power. There was a hammering at the door downstairs. As quickly as the moment had come, it was gone, and she screamed in heartbroken despair. How had those fools cleared their minds? Cursing, she turned to go rain her true rage on the detectives. This time, subtlety would be forgotten. Glancing into the mirror, she clutched her throat and screamed again. Her voice was strangled and she collapsed onto the floor. From the mirror, the Baron Samadhi 
looked down on Veronique's body, and he was laughing. De Cartier and Baldwin heard the screams from above. You need to move. They put their shoulders to the front door, breaking it open. The sitting room was empty. De Cartier took the winding staircase with Baldwin barreling along behind him. A smaller version of the opulent stairway coiled up to a third floor, and the two detectives charged through a white door covered with vivis and stormed into the ritual chamber. Baldwin rushed to the body. It's Veronique. Not Tim. You can't. Don't touch anything. De Cartier grabbed his partner's arm and dragged him away. What the hell happened here? De Cartier said nothing as he drew his gun and went to search the house. After a ten-minute search, De Cartier returned. It's clear. There's no one here. They had found no sign of a perpetrator. No sign either of the boy who had served them. Baldwin looked up, his face flushed. What happened? There's no blood, no wounds that I can see. No signs of struggle either, and with all this stuff in here, there'd be signs. Come on, let's go downstairs. There's nothing more we can do right now. De Cartier pulled his partner to his feet and urged him toward the door. Alphonse de Cartier had seen enough to give him a clear picture of what had happened here. He noted the disparate offerings on the altar, knew who had been invoked, and figured Veronique must have angered the Baron pretty badly. Veronique would be added to the ten previous victims, and what Sharky would have made of that, he had no idea. He had a feeling this was going to be a lot of paperwork, but that the bottom line would be case closed. The walls of Baron Samadhi's subterranean chamber trembled and wept. Pale mists The pungent breath of the earth seeped from the floor to obscure the thousands of bottles, jaws, and leather pouches that covered the massive altar he had raised to celebrate his own most glorious self. He savored every detail that was to come. Drawing down from the top shelf, a jar carved of blue stone that pulsed with a reddish, angry glow and throbbed like a preternatural heart. Screams and sighs, tears and moans, and wailing as from the pit of hell erupted like a symphony of despair and filled the chamber of the Lord of Death. Joy, too, rang out, and enough pleading to cleanse the skies of hope. Lifting the blue decanter to his eye, the barren Samadhi chuckled as he shook its contents causing a mournful wail to momentarily drown the cacophony. Where's your hubris now, my beauty? Where's your power, your charms that no man can resist? Where are your magics? (laughs) He slammed the jar down on the altar. If I let you out, will you do all that I command of you? Don't toy with me. Oh, beauty, (laughs) oh, beauty, do not dispel me. Rejoice. Our time has come, and I will have you as my right. No man, no woman can keep from the Baron Samidi what belongs to him. The Baron set the jaw down on the altar and opened his hand to the deepest places in his chamber, causing a huge mirror to appear before him, taller than his own great height, 
a glass of transparent black shimmering upon its surface. Regarding his powerful, handsome visage, the Baron liked what he saw immensely, and it always gave him great pleasure to gaze into the black pools of his own eyes. Then he stripped himself of the Creole finery that was his custom, laid his hat and his cane aside, and stood naked before the glass. He breathed deep, filling his chest with the sacred smokes that billowed sinuously like snakes upon the altar. Grasping the jar in his right hand, he pulled out the stopper and tossed it aside. Be with me, my beauty, my lovely Veronique. Be with me as you desire. <laughs> he drained the contents of the decanter down his throat, flinging the glass into the fire pit where it shattered. The Baron closed his arms tightly around his body in a deep embrace. Then he closed his eyes and bowed his head to await the rising of his greatest magic. Veronique Aliette Sabatier crawled in the utter blackness of the spirit world. Her eyes were filled with smoke and her lungs screamed for life-giving breath. She sobbed pitifully and cursed in anger before surrendering to the truth. She was dead. She wandered alone in the cemetery that lies at the deep ground of all cemeteries, lost and alone stripped of her many powers. Her spirit form stiffened, and she shivered with dread. She was not alone. He was there, all around her, within her, his presence like the night sky, his laughing eyes like the stars. His heat filled her like the sun, and his darkness was the wellspring from which all life crawled and to which it all returned. Samadhi, the Baron, the one she had sought to cheat, the one she had tried to seduce. Veronique, who delighted in sumptuous garments, was naked, exposed to the mocking eyes of the dead and the cold, unloving flesh she could sense all around her. She who had always delighted in the pleasures of the bath and costly fragrances, cosmetics, oils, and tinctures, was covered with the filth of the charnel house and the moist, dark earth of the tomb. She possessed nothing now but ash and sweat, and her tears, which were many. The Baron stood before his spirit mirror. His chamber was quiet now, and at peace. Naked, he looked down at his body and smiled. He slowly ran his hands over the smooth, delicate skin and touched his fingers to his lips. Sweet, the fragrance of rose and amber still clinging as a fine, dusty oil. He felt his sumptuous breasts, heavy in his hands, full and beautiful. He threw his head back and laughed. Long, slender legs supported the tall female body he now wore, 
thick curls and braids fell to the narrow waist. The Baron stepped closer to better examine the full, sensuous lips that parted in surprise and delight, and the beautiful almond eyes that looked back at him from his own face. You see, my Veronique, all that you wanted, you have it now. You who would seduce me has become me. You who would share my power shall taste it every day of this, our life together, until this body wears out and drifts away like ash. <laughs> Alas, I have always been very hard on my body. From an early age, we are taught to fear the unknown, to be afraid of what we do not understand. Well, you're about to discover that what you do know can not only hurt you, but can scare you to death. <laughs> Thirteen authors from around the world have been assembled to explore the very notion that learning about the unknown can have terrifying results. The Wicked Library presents 13 Wicked Tales, our first anthology, featuring Stephanie M. Wytovich, Jessica McHugh, K.B. Goddard, Lydia Peaver, and so many others. With an introduction from Daniel Foytek, and new artwork from Jeanette Andromeda, not to mention an intro from yours truly. <laughs> Step inside, kiddies. It's story time at the Wicked Library. Available in paperback and Kindle on Amazon.com. <laughs> learn what you fear and fear what you learn. 